0: Good morning. I'm Brand Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we welcome you. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're in a series this winter and spring on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And uh, this morning we're going to be back in chapter 9. And so if you're using one of, your, uh, of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 845 of that Bible. We're going to be looking at Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. And in this series on the Book of Mark, we're talking about Jesus, the King. The fact that He is the King, that He has come, and that because our King is here, because He has come, that has implications. It had it has effects. It has a call on our lives to live in response to that reality that has broken in. Uh, let's uh, pray together, and then we'll read our test. Our ta- te- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's pray together, and then we'll read our text and jump right in. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, for your care for us. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts uh, that are receptive, that are soft, and are malleable in your hands? Lord, speak to us now. We ask, we lift uh, our expectations up to you. Uh, We look to you and ask that you care for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, it's given to us for our good, for his glory. Uh, some of you will be uh, familiar with an author named Malcolm Gladwell, whom I mentioned earlier. His most recent book is called What the Dog Saw, and it's a collection of essays. Uh, many of them stories about how to, how to look at the world differently uh, than the ways in which we often look at things. And so one of, one of his uh, articles in the book is, is the title article, What the Dog Saw, and it's about Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Uh, And he, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how he became interested in this because there's this guy, the dog whisperer, who can uh, seemingly calm, you know, the the most savage of dogs and and he's got this strange connection with dogs and something happens when dogs are in his presence. And Gladwell talks about what, what, what interested him was the fact that he, that he could do this, and, and it got him wondering, you know, what, what is it that, what is this strange power that he exerts over dogs? You know, what is it out there that, that happens in that connection? But he said as, as, he, as he watched this guy and as he thought about it, he realized the more interesting question was to look at it from the other way around, what is it that the dog saw in the guy? Okay? What was it that the dog was perceiving was happening in him? So in other words, it wasn't that it was just this sort of mystical dog whispering power that was out there, but he said, if you spin it around, what's going on in the man that makes him able to do this? It involves looking differently at it. Uh, and I think this passage is about looking differently at our lives as well. Uh, you know, Think about when we look at our lives and what's going on in the aftermath, for example, of an angry outburst. Or an eating binge, or pornography, or complaining, or bitterness. When that crops up in our lives and we think, what happened out there to make me react this way, to act this way, to respond this way? Well, we're going to see that the Bible points us to a better question. What's happening inside of us that caused that angry outburst? What's happening inside of us that causes that desperate reaching for food or porn? What is it inside of us that causes that complaining remark, that bitter resentment? You see, we see page one to the very end. The Bible is an incredibly realistic book. It doesn't whitewash any of the realities of life. You see through its pages that the devastating effects of sin and of violence, of things that are done to one another things that are done to us. We see the effects of broken families and broken communities and broken lives, of natural disasters and crippling illnesses. But here in this passage, Jesus is pointing, to us, pointing us to the actual most dangerous enemy that we have, the most deadly disease known to man, the core struggle in each of our lives. It is the presence of indwelling sin, Theologians call it sin that is in us through and through. And it begins to teach us to ask the question, not what's happening out there, but what's happening on the inside. We're going to see three things that Jesus teaches us about sin here. The reality of indwelling sin, the trajectory of indwelling sin, and the cure for indwelling sin. Okay, First, the reality of indwelling sin. Uh, picking up kind of where we left off there, have you ever noticed how you tend to react when, uh, when you sin? How you tend to explain what's going on and why you've done what you've just done? Think about the kinds of things that we say either uh, to ourselves or maybe sometimes out loud. Things like this. You make me so angry when you fill in the blank. Or, well, I wouldn't have shouted if you hadn't fill in the blank. It was only a little lie. I had to lie because... Or, I know I shouldn't have done that, but you started it. Or, what about all the if-onlys in our lives? You know, if only my family had been more loving and supportive as I was growing up. Or if only my health were better. Or if only my spouse were a better fit for me. Or if only my job were more meaningful. My kids were more obedient. If only my friends weren't so selfish. If only I had more money. And the list goes on and on. Uh, Paul Tripp, an author I've also mentioned recently, in a, in a book he wrote called Whiter Than Snow, Meditations on Sin and Mercy. It's a series of uh, reflections on Psalm 51, a psalm that we read today for our uh, confession of sin. Here's what he says about the if-onlys. He says, the seductive thing about our if-onlys is that there is a bit of plausibility in all of them. We do live in a fallen world. We all face hardships of various kinds. We have all been sinned against in a variety of ways. None of us has ever lived in ideal circumstances or in perfect relationships. The world is a broken place, and we have all been touched in many ways by its brokenness. Yet the if-only lifestyle tends to say, my biggest problems in life exist outside of me and not inside of me. In his book, is a series of meditations, again, on Psalm 51, one line of which says, Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's David saying in Psalm 51 that Paul Tripper reflects on? He's saying, look, for, from the moment I was born, I had this problem of sin. In fact, he says, you can dial the clock back further. From the very moment I was conceived, sin was in me, and I have been deathly ill. In other words, the sins of others against us and the difficulties of life are are not the causes of our sins, they are the occasions of our sins. They are not the things that that cause us to act or react in a certain way, they are simply the canvas on which our sin comes and writes itself. Here in Mark 9, Jesus put it like this If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, what is it that causes us to sin, something in us, something that grabs hold of our hands and our feet and our eyes. Earlier in Mark chapter 7, Jesus drives us home even more sharply. He said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All of these things, all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What's he getting at? We have a problem on the inside. Now, you might have an objection, an understandable objection from the Bible even. What what about what the Bible says about us once we are in Christ, once we have had our sins forgiven, once we've been brought to faith? I mean, there are passages, New Testament passages, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Or Ezekiel 26, th- excuse me, 36, 26, this promise uh, that God gives that is fulfilled in Christ. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What about these promises of Scripture? Is that not true? Are we not given newness of life in Christ? Are we not given a new heart? Are we, not, are we not made something different than what we were before? And the Bible's answer is absolutely we are, and we'd be lost if that weren't the case. So why this struggle with indwelling sin? Again, Paul Tripp gives a, a helpful answer. He says it this way, we are given, in Christ we are given a new heart, not a perfected heart. A new heart, but not a perfected heart. We are given a heart that is now actually responsive to God. A heart that actually cares about our sin, not simply because of the effects it can have on our lives, but because it runs contrary to the will of God. We're given hearts that actually care what God thinks. We're given hearts that actually desire to worship, to become more like Him. But we're not given hearts that are perfected as anyone who is honest and come to Christ can willingly and easily say, you can certainly look at our lives and see that we wrestle with sin, with remaining sin. This, uh, this sin that we still wrestle with as believers, it's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. He, he, he says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, we see throughout Scripture, and we see it right here in Mark uh, chapter 9, that the reality of this indwelling sin. Okay, But the second thing we see in our passage is the trajectory of this indwelling sin. Where is it taking us? What is, what is happening? What is the end of the road? Well, Jesus... Um, has some colorful ways of explaining the trajectory of this and where it ends up. It ends in utter destruction. I mean, look at the graphic ways he says this. Verse 42, he's actually speaking about uh, warning against causing someone else to fall into sin. And he says, it, it, "Rather than do that, it would be better for you if, if you had a millstone tied to you, one of one of these huge stones that were used to grind grain, better that that was tied to you and you were tossed into the ocean to sink to the bottom of the sea than you would lead someone else into sin." Verse 43, end of the road here, he talks about he talks about it as hell, a place of unquenchable fire. Verse 45, he speaks of being thrown into hell. Verse 47 speaks of being thrown into hell. Verse 88, he quotes Isaiah 66 when he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says there is a place of utter and ultimate destruction. He says that is where your sin is leading you. That is where it would have you go. The word for hell in Greek is Gehenna. And it comes from uh, an area southwest of, uh, in the southwest side of Jerusalem called the Hinnon Valley where uh, the trash of Jerusalem is burned, and where in the Old Testament, uh, King Josiah, when he was purging the land of uh, foreign false gods, he took those and he burned them in, in this valley to defile them. It became synonymous with a place of unending fire and destruction. Jesus is saying in the most graphic way possible, your sin will destroy you. That is what it is out for. That is what it wants to do. Our sin is unfathomably serious. And it is not to be trifled with. John Owen uh, Puritan wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, The Killing of Sin, about the power of sin in our lives and what God calls us to do as we war against it. And, And here's what he says about what sin wants to do to you and to me. Sin aims at the utmost. Every time it rises to tempt or entice Might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. That that is what our sin wants to do to us. And frankly, we, we don't take that seriously enough, and I don't. I mean, think about the ways in which we even talk we use phrases like this. I just needed to blow off a little steam. Okay, imagine a way in which that might play it for you. You come home from work, uh, or you come back to your dorm room after you get a test back, or some situation where you're with family or friends, and, and you, you've just got to blow off a little steam. You've just got to stop and tell this other person just how unfair life was to you that day. Just how ridiculous and demanding your boss was, just how foolish and narrow-minded your professor was—that you couldn't see that this was clearly an A paper. What is wrong with that person, right? And you begin to talk about how life has done you wrong, and you begin to throw those those uh, barbs and arrows at those out there who would make your life difficult. You're letting off a little steam, and then what happens? You feel better. I'm glad I got that off my chest. And, you know, my heart just feels so warm and happy and and soft right now and makes me really want to go out and love people. And, you know, I can just step right back into work and love my boss the way God called me to. And, you know, I just love that professor. No. What, What happens? The letting off of steam, what we actually find is that it reinforces the hardness of heart. That as we even indulge in that, it draws us in even deeper. You see, uh, because as Jesus tells us here, and as we're reminded here, that that sin wants the uttermost for us. Not just the complaining remark, but a heart that is utterly hard that would end in murder if it could. See, that's what Jesus is telling us about this trajectory of sin. It would utterly consume us and destroy us, and it is not a thing to be played with. Well, if that's the case, I mean, if there really is, if, if sin really is, does have these characteristics and if it really is pointing us in that direction, what are we going to do? Third thing here, what is the cure for our indwelling sin? If you turn the corner that we talked about at the very beginning, and begin to see that your deepest problems are, are not really the things out there, but the sin that lurks in your own heart. If you, if you begin to grasp the fact that your primary struggle and the, the primary danger in your life is actually what dwells within, what are you going to do about it? Well, our tendency, uh, and maybe that's just as good, capable Americans or just as human beings, our tendency is to say, well, if, if the problem lurks within, then I'm going to have to look within to find the solution to the problem. right? If the problem is my heart that just won't get in line, if the problem is uh, this sin in my life that keeps roaring out, well, then I just need uh, maybe a, a little bit more control. Right? You know, we tell ourselves things like this. Well, I mean, just, just stop sinning. Just, just do the, the right thing. I mean, t- take an example like this, though. Um, even in, the, even in the religious things we do, right? Maybe if we just pray more. Maybe if we just memorize Bible verses that address the specific sin in our lives. Maybe if we read good Christian books about resisting sin. All of those might be good, helpful tools. But if fundamentally we're looking within, it simply will not take us the distance. Think about it if, let's say your, your struggle is with your tongue, with the things that you say. As you, begins, as you begin to see, there is something in you that causes you to, to make these remarks. And so what are you going to do? Bite your tongue? How well has that worked for you in the past? You know, you, do you, you know what it's like maybe in that moment where you think, all I have to do right now is keep my lips closed. Like just not open them. And you ever had those moments when you feel like, I could actually pick up my car and toss it over my shoulder more easily than I can keep my lips closed at this moment, right? Just keep your mouth closed. And does it work? See, we actually come to see that, that though the deepest struggle of our, li- our lives dwells within, that we're going to be utterly lost unless we look not within but without for the cure to that problem that though it lurks inside of us, we must actually be rescued from the outside if we're going to be rescued of what lurks on the inside of our hearts. We're going to have to see first so the solution begins not with what we do for God, but it must begin with what God does for us. And we, we see that here in um, verses 49 and 50. Um, of this passage. And, and when, when you look at it, let's, let's just read it again together. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, well, I knew I was in trouble this week when I turned to a, a commentary I was reading through, and it said uh, something like this. Verses 49 and 50, Jesus's meaning here is somewhat obscure. <laughs> So... <laughs> And when you read another one in there, are you know? Here are all the different choices of what this could mean. Uh, what part of what's happening here is Jesus is using several different metaphors. He's talking about fire. He's talking about salt. Uh, he's talking about losing its saltiness. And and going from one verse to the next, he's actually kind of mixing the metaphor and using them in different ways. You know, in verse forty-eight, when he talks about fire, he talks about the fire of destruction of what our sin will ultimately lead us to. But there is a switch when he comes to verse forty-nine. He's talking about a different kind of fire, and he talks about Salt, what's going on? Well, it at the very least, this. Both salt and fire are are biblical images of sacrifice, of what happens in a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, salt was to accompany the sacrifices that were made to God. This comes uh from Leviticus chapter two. It talks about salt, which represents God's covenant, that all that um, grain offerings and other offerings uh had to have salt with them uh, when they were offered. uh, Verse uh, 13 of Leviticus 2, it says, All your offerings you shall offer salt. Why? Well, maybe it's because of this. Salt in the ancient world was primarily known as a preservative. Okay, No refrigeration. What did you do if you were going to uh, save your meat and save your food? You wrapped it in salt. You cured it with salt. What is the cure for our indwelling sin? Jesus points us to the fact that we need salt, and we need salt in us. He goes on and talks about fire, this fire that's often used of purification and sacrifice in the Old Testament. Here's what I think, uh, though there may be many layers to uh, what's going on in these couple verses, I think at least we're getting this, a picture of the answer for this for us only comes through sacrifice. It only comes through being exposed to a salt that will make us salty, to a fire that will, that will bring us the cleansing that we need. He goes on in the next verse and talks about, you know, if a salt loses its saltiness. Um, you know, you're in uh, William and Mary chemistry, and you know that salt doesn't become unsalty, right? Sodium chloride stays sodium chloride. Well, in... Um, the salt that they would have used from the Dead Sea, it would have been mixed with lots of other substances from the Dead Sea when that was evaporated out. And it was possible for that stuff they had to have the real salt in it leach out, and the rest of it was tasteless and insipid and would not do the work of preserving food, which is what it was needed for. We need real salt that really is going to come and cure and preserve. In other words, we need a real sacrifice. We need Jesus, the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the fact that um, throughout the Old Testament uh, that priests were required to bring these sacrifices for the people to God over and over and over again. the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, uh, look, ultimately those sacrifices uh, were unending because none of those sacrifices were really adequate. They were not, they didn't go far enough. He, He says this, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews says, finally, we have the salt, the fire, the sacrifice that we most need, the one that will really cleanse us, the one that will really take away the sin, the one that will really come and break the back of the indwelling sin in our lives. These were fulfilled for us in Jesus. And that's why when Paul says at the end of chap- uh, Romans chapter 7, "O oh, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do with this sin that still dwells in me? What was the answer that he comes to at the end of chapter 7? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we must see this if we're going to understand the solution for our sin. We're going to have to see what Jesus has done to forgive us, to bring us back to God. You're going to, before you can rightly hear what Jesus says, and we're going to look at it in a minute, before you can rightly hear what He says about our own fighting against sin, then we first have to hear what He has done once and for all to free us from that sin, to take away the penalty of it, to break the back of it. And though there is still indwelling sin in us, it will not win the day because of what Christ has done for us. Now, when we get that, that peace, that it begins with what God has done for us, that the cure comes from the outside, then I think we're ready to hear what Jesus goes on to say about actual wrestling with sin in our lives. It means that there are things for us to do that we, it means serious and thoughtful and decisive war against the remaining sin in our lives. I mean, look at the way Jesus puts it, again, as starkly as it could be. If your hand causes you to sin, slap it. Rebuke it. Stick it in your pocket. No, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. As one uh, commentator put it, the metaphors of eyes, hands, and feet are all inclusive of what we view and what we do and where we go. Jesus tells us that we are to uh, take drastic action against the sin in our lives. Back to John Owen, the mortification of sin. He says, Un- Every unmortified, every unkilled sin will certainly do two things in our lives. First, it will weaken the soul and deprive it of vigor. And secondly, it will darken the soul and, de- and deprive it of its comfort and peace hear what he's saying if we don't take Jesus' word seriously that we are to war against the sin in our lives it will darken us it will draw us away it will make our hearts heavy and though scripture is very clear that God's people can never ultimately be destroyed that he will win the day for them perhaps you've known those seasons in life where you are not fighting against this where you're letting your heart be captured by other things And the very worship of God that once was so sweet for you becomes so dull. When it once was a joy to read scripture, once you were eager to pray, once you really, when you prayed, you knew and felt the presence of God, and it feels like he is a million miles away. Maybe that is happening, maybe. It's not the only way, but maybe in your life, because you're not taking your sin seriously, because you're comforting it and coddling it rather than rejecting it. Commentator says, whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded promptly and decisively, even as a a surgeon amputates a hand or a leg in order to save a life. See, all our sin matters to God. When writer goes on, as important as eyes, hands, and feet are to us, or whatever else claims ultimate allegiance, they are not life. The kingdom of God is life, and nothing in this life should be allowed to prevent one from entering the kingdom. The choice is literally between God's kingdom and the fire that never goes out. So what does that mean? What does it mean if we're going to really engage our sin in that way, take it that seriously? Think about the picture of this. Um, uh, Some of you may have seen uh, the movie 127 Hours which I have not seen yet, but it tells the story of Aaron Ralston, who in uh, 2003 was uh, hiking in the canyons of Utah, and he was trapped when a boulder fell on his arm. And he was there for several days without uh, being rescued. And you you know the story. What did he do? He cut off his arm below the elbow so that he could hike out and be saved. Why in the world would a sane person do that? Because if he didn't, he would die. And that was at Jesus' point exactly. What good is it to enter heaven with, or to enter hell with two hands, rather than go to heaven with one? He says it's that serious. What's it going to look like for us? Well, it might look like a lot of things, depending on the sins of our individual lives that we wrestle with. Um, here's one picture that's maybe helpful. Some of you will have seen the movie uh, Fireproof, and the uh, main character in Fireproof is a, a fireman. His name's Caleb, and, and his his marriage is disintegrating. Uh, his relationship with his wife is falling apart, uh, and he begins in the course of the movie through the intervention of his father and through a good friend to actually begin to care about that. Uh, his father challenges him and points him to Jesus, and he comes to faith, and he begins to walk in steps of repentance of how is he going to turn his life around and really war against his sin, and the one that had, uh, that had caused such incredible damage in his life was his, uh, was his addiction to online pornography. And there's this scene in the movie where his computer is on and it's beckoning to him again. And he hits this point where he just breaks. And so he takes the computer and takes the monitor and rips them off the desk, cords out of the wall. And he takes them outside into his backyard and he he hurls them into the yard and he picks up a baseball bat and he bashes them to pieces. And as he's doing this in a rage, he gets done and he looks up and and he sees the neighbor next door just kind of sipping tea, (laughs) looking at him with a very worried look. He's like, how you doing? And so then he picks it up and he dumps it in the trash can and he goes inside. Uh, I read an online review of the movie and, and here's one of the comments from the review. Occasionally, the didactic tone goes over the top, as when Caleb takes a computer, takes his computer and monitor, source of those alluring porno sites, with a baseball bat, rather than, say, exercising a little self-restraint. And as I read that, I thought, at this point, the reviewer totally misses what's going on here. What do you tell somebody who's in the middle of uh, sin that has wrapped itself around their heart? Just show a little more self-control. Just don't turn on that computer. Just don't go to that website. Just don't open the fridge again. Just don't yell at people when you get angry. Just hold your tongue. There are times and places in our lives where dealing with our sin needs much more serious action than that. And that's what Jesus had in mind. Throw the computer out. Cut off the hand. Maybe for you, it's uh, the much more mundane. Maybe you come home after a long day and all you want is quiet and you don't find it when you walk in the door. So you retreat to the living room and pick up a book and begin to read and just tune everything out when your family needs you. What do you need to do? Cut off your hand. Or throw away the book. Or maybe just do what you ought to do and put it on the shelf. And pick it up later when the kids are in bed. Maybe for you, as you're stewing about the ways life is not, providing what you have wanted, and you're hooked on romantic comedies. Someone out there that will really love me the way I've deserved to be loved, and as you feed yourself on that, you realize it's simply making you more and more discontent with life. Maybe you need to shut off the DVD player, not turn it back on. Or maybe your habit is you're flipping through magazines. And as you flip through those and you start seeing pictures of beautiful houses and you think, you know, my house just isn't good enough. And, you know, we really need to redecorate even though we can't afford it. And, you know, my furniture is just so old. If only I had something a little newer, a little better, a little prettier, then, then maybe life would sing for me. Maybe you need to throw away your magazines. Or maybe it's the occasional lunch with your friends that just turns into gossip sessions as you talk about each other's lives and the lives of the people that you know. And it is only feeding the darkness of your heart. Maybe you need to do something drastic there. Maybe it's get up and walk away. Leave the lunch. Maybe it's the braver thing to turn to your friends and say, you know, this is just not the way our conversation ought to be going. We've got to change. You see we may well be called in certain places in our lives to do exactly what Jesus says, to take drastic action. Not so that he can somehow forgive us, but because he has forgiven us, because he has put salt in our lives, because he has called us to life. Now, let me ask you this. When are you going to hate sin more? If you feel like the degree to which you can hate your sin and turn away from it is what will finally earn your forgiveness and make God pleased with you, Or if you know that God has already forgiven you, and therefore you are free to fight against your sin. Don't you see, people who know Jesus and who grow in love for him actually grow to hate their sin more. Because not only is it sin, not only is it destructive for their own lives, it offends God. And they care what God thinks because they love him. That as this works in our hearts and as we get a hold of the gospel and rest in that, more and more we will look at the parts of our lives, the areas of our lives, the sin in our lives that would destroy us and say, not only is that wrong, I don't want it because I want Jesus, because I want what he is doing in my life and because I want to please him. I have been forgiven and set free and so now I am free to turn against my sin, to wage war on it, to do whatever it takes to cut it off in my life. What's the result of all this? We begin to take Jesus seriously at his word. And we see that pop up in our passage as well. Verse 43, verse 45, what does he speak of? He speaks of entering life. In verse 47, he speaks of entering the kingdom of God. What does he say as we know the salt of Christ in our lives and as we turn away from our sin, that we become uh, morose and dour and prudes? Now he says we begin to know life in its fullness as we turn from sin, as we turn to the holiness and the goodness of Christ. But it's going to begin with us seeing rightly, seeing not what's outside, but what's inside. And even Malcolm Gladwell and what the dog saw. It took a writer from the outside saying, look at this, you're not seeing it rightly, let's flip it around. In in the movie Fireproof, um, this main character, Caleb, didn't simply come to see the error of his own ways. He had a father and a good friend who were speaking into his life saying, Look, see this, you're missing something, turn around. And as we would be people who follow God and turn from our sin and turn towards him, we need others as well. We need the searchlight of Scripture bringing to bear on our lives that we might see our sin for what it is. We need friends. We need fellow church members. We need people we trust and love around us as well who will speak into our lives as well. Are you letting others do that? Is that, what, is that what's happening at your home group? Is that what you're doing in a patient and loving way for your spouse, for your friends? You see, we are people in need of light, and we're uh, always being called to by sin that would destroy us. But Christ means that we would have life. That we would know life and know it to the full. That we would turn from the things that would darken and harden us and know the glory of walking with him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Do you want to know this light? Do you want to know this health? Then turn and know this salt. and Know this fire that comes from Jesus. And war against your sin. Cut it off. Turn away from it that you might have life. May that be true of us. Let's pray.